Good morning. Good to see everybody. We start the book of Romans today. So if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, um, we were in the book of Acts, and we're in the New Testament, and then right after Acts comes Romans. So we start that. We'll be on it for several weeks. So this is a little bit of what we have in store. Romans is a letter. It's called an epistle, and epistle means letter. It actually, it's the first one. It starts a, a new section in the New Testament. So here's how the New Testament is laid out. It starts off with the Gospels, and that explains how Christianity came to be. And then Acts comes in, and it explains how Christianity started to spread through the Roman Empire. And then the epistles or the letters come in, and they say, well, how do we actually live out Christianity? So Romans is the first one of those. How do we live this thing out? The titles of the letters or the titles of the epistles almost always tie to a location or a group of people in a location. So Romans is written to people in, man, you guys are on it today. Corinthians is written to people in Corinth. It's usually church people. And the letters or the epistles are usually written, so this is a general statement, not all of them, are usually written to address an issue. So here's the Roman issue that it addresses. That church, they believe, was probably started by Jews who heard Peter preach at Pentecost. So if you kind of remember back in Acts, right after the resurrection, they don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people become a Christian on a single sermon, a great day. That day, it says that visitors from Rome were in the crowd. Jews from Rome. So they, they presumably went back and started this church. Several years later, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, kicked all the Jews out. That meant the church went under a leadership change. So that church had Jews in it and non-Jews, and they're very, very different. Jews were probably leading it. And the Jews were like, a, they were a tightly wound bunch. It's like sort of, like just, they, have, they, they brought to the cross, there's a cross, tons of baggage. Like believed in Jesus, he was the son of God, but they had all this stuff. They learned it growing up. It's like, well, it's, we believe in Jesus and he's the son of God and he saved us, but then we also have to eat this way and do this and we have to have the, like rituals and stuff. So that's kind of how it went. Well, when they went away, that left the Gentiles and they didn't have any of that. They were very laid back. I wore a t-shirt up here when we went through Acts to kind of highlight the difference. When I wore the t-shirt, some of you out there underneath your breath are like, I can't believe he's wearing a t-shirt. Hmm. That's a Jewish tendency. The best way I can say it is the t-shirt guys took over in Rome. Okay? This letter's written in 57. They came back. (laughs) And the Gentiles broke their church. Have you ever fixed something up for someone and then you lend it out and they break it? That... What do you do when the gospel puts you together with people you don't like? They're so different from you. What do you do? You turn their thoughts towards the one thing they have in common, and the one thing they have in common is 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what Paul, the right, the writer of this epistle or letter, that's what he does. He turns in a robust fashion. He gives them a sustained, laid out, thorough, thought through theological argument. He explains the eternal plan of salvation of God, of sinners, and he makes sure, you're going to find this right off the bat, he makes sure that everyone in those two camps knows that you are a sinner. There's all kinds of unrighteousness going on there, and that you both need the same thing, and the thing you need is Jesus, and he lifts Jesus up to meld them together. That's the letter. A sustained, thought-out, theological argument presenting the plan of salvation. So that's what we're going to go through. What's in it for us? What difference does Romans make to us? Because who's arguing with a Jew this week? Anyone? Not really. So what's in it? Here's what we have. Now I'm excited about this. Here's our shot with Romans. We have the chance with Romans to form, inform, and reform our thoughts about God. When Paul's writing this letter, he never goes, on average, more than 46 words, not verses, words without talking about God. This is a book about God. This is a book about who he is, what he did, what he had planned, how he pulled it off, how Jesus came in, what Jesus accomplished, what he's going to do. This is a book about God. This is God revealing himself as he wants to be known. And we have a shot to think rightly. We can take whatever maybe we think about God and, and replace it with what Romans reveals. I'm excited about that. That's our subtitle, Rome, to think rightly. about Because how you think about God, it trails all out into your life. So I want to stay on this for a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to push the why a little bit longer than we'll start, I promise, okay? So here's why, and I'm going to use... Duck Dynasty as, as an example to help us understand the difference that Romans can make in our lives. This is why we need this. All right. My son Jack told me about this episode. I don't watch it, but this was the episode. One of the brothers, you familiar with Duck Dynasty, the beard guys and the rags to riches, Louisiana duck? All right. All right. <clears throat> One of the brothers, his wife wants a playhouse. So stop right there. His wife wants a playhouse. When I say playhouse, what do you think? Well, I know. Think about playhouse itself. Is it big? Is it plastic? Is it in the ground? Is it up in a tree? Like what? Because you have an idea of what it is, right? So this was her idea. Bang. <laughs> it actually doesn't have the flag on it yet, but it is the, it is the pinnacle of all playhouses. Got it? The dude doesn't know that. Here's his idea of playhouse. <laughs> okay, so that's what he builds. And they all come out and they're like, oh. So she has the guys, the professionals come and build the real playhouse. And he comes home and sees it and he doesn't like it at first. But then he looks at it and there are some things about it he does like, like... It has a better beam. It has a nice slide. The rope's better. And so what he ends up doing is he takes some of the finer attributes off the real playhouse 
and he slaps it on his, and it kind of, it's still a jerked over version of Playhouse, but it's his version. Okay? God. When I say God, what do you think? Because you have a version, and I wonder, like you believe something about him, don't you? you and I wonder where it came from. Did, did, did it come from you getting hurt? Did it come from you feeling alone? Did it come from you feeling warm and fuzzy one day? Like you have an idea of God, but where did it come from? And is it, can, can we put the, the split screen back up? Is it maybe, maybe, is it sort of a slap together, pardon the vernacular, kind of a jerked over version of, of what he really is? Is your version of God sort of like Jeb's playhouse? And what Romans comes along and says is, you want to know about God? Do you want to know who God is? And it presents him in a full, big, robust, all-inclusive way. Romans presents God like that photo presents Playhouse. And what we have the opportunity to do is look the two and go, oh yeah, maybe I should let go of what I think about him and be informed by what Romans says. Man, I hope that happens. Now, a little bit further. Can you see any potential danger in believing a version about God that's not really him? Let's say he's here and this is what he reveals himself to be, but you kind of believe a different version of him down here. Can you see in any way where you could run into trouble by believing something about him that's not true? Potentially. So, I agree. I'll give you an example. There are all kinds of versions about him that people form and put together, kind of slap it together, that aren't really anything that, that resembles him. You find them everywhere. I, I found them in, in this prayer. Here's a prayer. That's a poem. It's a prayer. It's called the Fisherman's Prayer. But there's a theology underneath it that I want you to see. It's alive and well. The prayer goes like this. I pray that I might live to fish till my last day. And when it comes to my last cast, I then most humbly pray. When in the Lord's great landing net and peacefully asleep, that in his mercy I be judged big enough to keep. Isn't that nice? That make you feel good? Is, is, is that remotely true in any way? Does it keep anyone from believing it? No. The theology underneath that is this, that God wants you to be happy. And he's completely okay if your life is sold out for, out for fishing forever. Is that true? <laughs> is that, like, I pray that I could fish every day, all day. And God says, yes. That it's okay to throw up a prayer at the end on your last cast. You can pray for whatever you want. Mostly you pray for the fish to bite. And then at the last one, you throw up the, you throw up the other prayer like, oh, God, save me. And God's okay with that. And that prayer will somehow put you in a net. And you're peacefully asleep. And God would agree with that in some way. And then it's going to be okay in the net because of three things. One, 
God's pretty good. That talks about mercy. God's fair. He's reasonable. It's going to be okay. Two, I'm pretty good. And three, there's going to be other fish in the net that are smaller than me. Right? That's, that's the whole idea because like I'm pretty good. I'm better than them. They're a small fish I'm, and I'm going to be judged big enough to keep. Whew. That theology is everywhere. God's a pretty decent guy. I'm a pretty decent person. Everything's just going to work itself out. Let's go fishing. It's everywhere. And Romans is going to insist that's not the case. You want to know about God? This is God. Now, not everything. We're, gonna, we're not going to like everything we take in. It's going to... Re- it's going to reveal God, and some of the stuff's going to be hard to reconcile, like statements about God that he reveals that are true about him that are going to go against maybe what we always thought. And so it's going to be, we're not going to like everything. And we're not going to understand everything. And no one ever will. But we're going to be far better off thinking about how God reveals himself versus just throwing it together on our own. That's why Romans. I always do long intros when we start a book. Sorry, but it's important. It's important that we know why. Now, you know why? Thinking rightly. Get ready to let go of some of your thoughts about God and replace them with what God says about himself. Here we go. Romans chapter 1. 1 through 7. Paul, we talked about him, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That just said, I know Jesus is Lord because he came back from the dead. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you, who's he writing to, this church in Rome that can't get along, Jews and Gentiles, you who are called to belong to Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So he starts off first with his name. Do you know why they always put their name first on these letters? When we write letters, we always put our name at the end, right? Sincerely, chat, right? Well, it's because we don't write with scrolls, and this thing's 16 chapters, so if he didn't put his name on the front, they'd have to unroll the whole thing. It's like, who's this from? I'm like, oh, it's Paul. So he just like, he just saves them the unrolling, all right? So he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus, other translations say bond servant. Some translations say slave. I'm Paul. Hey, it's Paul, and I'm a slave of Jesus. Now, that language is a little bit odd for us because we don't have servanthood or slavery. It's not part of our culture. But in calling himself a servant of Jesus or a slave of Jesus, he's communicating massive truths about God that the first readers, these readers, would have picked up. So, because servanthood was part of their culture in this way. It was very common for them um, to have servants over the issue of debt. 
So if you fell into debt back then, a common way to get out of debt was to become your creditor's slave or servant. Hey, I can't pay my bills. I will be your slave, and then we'll pay this thing off. The maximum term for slavery in that context was six years. So you knew going in, regardless of what you owed, you're going to work this thing off over six years. So here's what would happen. You're destitute. Things are really tough. You agreed to be a slave. You come in, and things are a little different right away. Your master's house is pretty nice. Food's pretty good. Bed's pretty comfortable. Way better than what you came from. Family seems reasonably happy. And so you go through it, and then towards it, this was not uncommon, towards the end of the six years, you start to realize, like, I'm going to be free soon, and I'm going to be broke. <laughs> you know, like, I kind of like it. I mean, it's, I remember what I came from, and I'm not, yeah, I'll be free, but I'm going to be, I'm just be back to peanut butter and jelly, ramen noodles. I don't even know if I'm going to have a bed. Who knows? Point of clarification, not everyone agrees that ramen noodles are at the lower end of the hierarchy of food. <laughs> you may be one of those first, just giving like, yeah, some of you are like, you lived on these at Purdue. I know you did. I was there, and I watched you live on them. Uh, my son, is one of, my son John is one of those. We just came through all these grad parties. Unbelievable food at grad parties. Unbelievable food. And so we go through, we almost overdosed on scotcheroos. It was close. Um, but John like rolls into the last one. He's like, man, you know what I'm going to do? You know what this party needs? <laughs> A ramen noodle bar. He's like, when I graduate, I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, beef, chicken, shrimp. You're just like, really? Yep. So I have that to look forward to. Six years when he graduates, ramen noodle bar at my house. We digress. All right, back to the story. You come up on six years, and you don't want to leave. You could say this. You could go to your master and say, I don't want to go. And if he was agreeable that you would stay, you take it to the city fathers. They kick it around a little bit. If everybody's good, then they take an awl. It's got like a, they pierce your ear, and they stick a certain earring in your ear, and it tells everyone, okay, you are not free. You are a slave, but you are a slave because you want to be. And that earring said as much or more. As a matter of fact, that earring said everything about your master and how good it was to be underneath him than it ever did about you and your fear to be out there somewhere. The earring said, you see that, and you're like, I wonder whose slave he is because it has to be good to be in his house. So, when Paul says, he starts off, I am a bond servant of God, what he's saying is, right off the bat, I'm a slave to God, and it's the best place you could ever be. I don't even want to go out there on my own. The best place for me, the place that I belong, the place I'm a slave, the place I want to be, is underneath his authority. They would have said, they would have read that, like, man, God is good. And then he says this, this is what he builds to you right after he says that, this is the best place for me to be. This is where I belong. And what does he say next? You, who he's writing to, you belong here too. He builds up to it in verse 6. Jesus declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. So that ratified it. We talked about it. <clears throat> 
Nobody beats death, but he did. He's God. So then Paul says, he set me apart for the gospel to bring about the obedience that comes from faith for the sake of his name to all nations. And that includes you, those people in Rome, and you are called to belong to Jesus. So he says, the best place in the world to be for me is underneath the authority of God. And you are called to belong to Jesus too. Remember how good he is and get under here. They, me, you, we are called to belong to Jesus. Make it personal. Like you are called to belong to Jesus. You are. You are. You're called to belong. You okay with that? This is what God says to all of you in here. You are called to belong to me. Get under here. The best place for you to be is underneath my authority. You don't go out there by yourself because I. this is what I have in store for you. You are called to belong. I hope you can hear it. You're called to belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. Now, this is belong. Belong is this, and he laid it out. This is what it means to be under there. It's good to have obedience that comes from faith that brings good attention to God out in the world. That's what he said. I was called to bring the gospel and bring about obedience that comes from faith that glorifies God to the nations, and, he, and that happens underneath him, and you are called to belong. So I don't know if this church was doing it. I don't know if this church had obedience that came from faith that was bringing good attention out into the world. I don't think it was because we got the letter and he's going to reprimand them later. So I don't think it was. But the question is, do you, do I? Do you guys claim faith in here? Do you claim faith? Do you have an ounce of obedience to back it up? Is God in any way getting good attention out in the world from the way you live obediently under him? Do you have, we claim faith all day long, but are you, how do we know? Are you obedient? Now, where does the obedience come from? Comes from faith. I'll show you where it comes from. It comes from this. He's going to beat it out of us. Forgive me for this analogy, but I have been around these things all week. I've actually been around these things more than people, so they're on my mind. Do you know what this is? This is a sacrificial anode. This is a magnesium rod. You know where it goes? In your water heater. I asked you for forgiveness for this analogy, so you have to do it. If you have a well and a new water heater and your water smells like eggs, rotten eggs, this needs to come out. If you take it out, shut the water off to your water heater <laughs> first. <laughs> Otherwise, you shall have a hot gusher, which could potentially ruin your water heater. That costs $409. But anyway. Do 
you know what this does? This is great. You, this language is actually in plumbing manuals. Listen to this. The single most important fact, I'm quoting, the single most important factor in whether a water heater lives or dies is the condition of its sacrificial anode. It's designed to take everything that will corrode your metal tank and kill your metal tank onto itself and die so that your tank can live. (laughs) The gospel is everywhere. It's everywhere. Do you know you have a metal tank full of water? That's never going to work unless something is introduced into it to save it. Thus, the sacrificial anode, its actual title, and what it does is it takes everything upon itself that will kill your tank and dies itself so your tank can live. Here's a picture. That's what happens. I love this example. I thought that plumbing was the devil's domain. (laughs) Satan is never more active in my life than when I plumb something. And it turns out that he that is in the water heater is greater. This is the sending of the Son. It's faith in this act. It's faith in this act. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. It's faith in this act that saves you, and it's this act and faith in it that brings about obedience. Do you get it? Do you know why he can call for obedience? Why can he call for obedience that comes from faith? Because God did it first, and he sent his son to save you, and after he did that, he can ask for anything he wants. And guess what? You'll do it. You take this out and you demand obedience and you'll get zero. You put this in and say, this is what I've done for you and everything changes. The faith that comes from obedience. And where are we called to belong? We are called to belong under a God who's so good that he wouldn't spare his own son, that he would die for us, that we could live. Who doesn't want to go there? It's good to be a slave. That's what he's saying. It's good to be a slave because this is what your obedience that comes from faith. He goes, if you have zero obedience in your life to God, you have forgotten this or you never knew it. God will never ask you I need need to back up. He might. But when God commands obedience, he always knows what he has done. The foundation for it is his service, his sacrifice of his son for you. Now, Paul says this. So he comes out of that, and then the next chunk of verses in Romans, he, he says, I I want to get to you. I want to get to, I want to come and see you. And he actually spends six or seven or eight verses explaining how badly he wants to come to Rome. Some think he's kind of salving over a wound like, 
Like the, the church in Rome, he's been at this a while. He's been evangelizing and he's never come to visit them. And they're like, what are we, you know? We don't, we don't rate. We can't, we can't get a visit from Paul. And so he's like, hey, trust me. As God is my witness, I want to do that. I pray for you. And then he says this. But what I want to do is I want to come to Rome to preach the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel to, this is 15 through 17, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Who is he talking to? Hey, this thing is for everybody. Jews and Greeks and everyone who would believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's, this is not about being under him and living in such a way that brings glory. It's the best place to be. It's not about just white-knuckling it and trying to get it done. It's to live by faith. And he wants to preach the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So we need to understand that word. What is revealed in the sending of the Son? What is revealed? That the gospel is the sending of the Son and our faith in it. What's revealed? It says the righteousness of God. The righteousness, here's the root word for that. It's actually the, the, there's the Greek root word, and I don't read Greek, but I got this from a guy named Paul Mallory, who married my wife and I 20 years ago on Wednesday. 20 years. You could pray for 21. 21 who's also preached through the entire Bible verse by verse. So I trust him. And he says this, this is what's revealed. I can't pronounce it, but it has two O's on the end. Anytime a verb in, this, in the original language has two O's on it, it means this. It means how you will treat a person. So that, how he will treat you, is revealed based upon the gospel. So how will he treat you? He won't treat you as you are. And he won't treat you as you could be. He will treat you as the Son himself. The sending of the Son and faith in it allows God to treat you as righteous. The revelation of righteousness from God that's revealed in the gospel is if you put your faith in this, he treats you as if you never sinned. God sees you and treats you as if you never sinned your whole life. And it's almost too, it's almost impossible to believe, isn't it? Like, how could he do that? Why would he do How could he do that? That is the good news. That is the plan. That is his plan of salvation. That's what he worked out. And everything that was you all your mess was imputed to him, started to kill him, but all his good, all his righteousness gets assigned to you, and God is able to see you by faith in the Son as never having sinned perfect. You belong there. That's what he's calling us to. Who doesn't want to belong there? You are called to belong to Jesus. Why not? It's the best place to be. You're called to belong. Get underneath the authority of God because this is how good he is. That's how good he is. All right, now he turns it. It kind of goes downhill from here. Sorry. 
It's been pretty decent so far, right? It's been pretty good. Okay. <laughs> this is the high point, all right? So remember this when you walk out of here. This is God is incredibly good. All right. Now, he turns it and he starts to make the case. He starts from the rest of one, all rest of one, two, and part of three about why we actually need this. Because if you never think you need, I can talk all day long about a sin-absorbing absorbing Savior that you need, but if you don't know that you need it, you'll never, you won't listen to me, you won't turn, you won't consider it, you, you'll just be hard-hearted, you won't do anything. So you have to know that you actually need this, because you'll die without it. And that's the case he begins to make in 18 all the way through. So kind of the title of this next sub, subsection is the unrighteousness of, of man, the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. He actually is going to do Gentiles first, then Jews, but the unrighteousness of us, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of us. I said it this way in your notes. You are called to belong to Jesus, but two, we just don't care. We don't care. He wants you, we're going to read this description, he wants you to be able to find yourself somewhere on this page where you start to realize he's describing me and I really do need the Son. I really do need the sin-absorbing Savior. So this is what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God is offended by two things. He's offended by our ungodliness, which is our disinterestedness. Man, that was hard. We don't care. Our apathy. Just use apathy, Chad. Our apathy towards God and our, our unrighteousness, our sin towards other people. So he's offended by both. We don't care about him. We don't care about others. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. But for although, this is 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's just the beginning of it. Is there anything about that description that, that resembles you? Suppressing the truth, unrighteousness, ungodliness. Because when it clicks, and there's a whole list. We're going to keep reading the list. When it clicks, then you will know that you need what the Son has to offer. But he's going to make the case that every single one of us, all of us, need it. Now, he doesn't have to go any further with that description for me because he caught me in the first three verses because I'm perfectly described in what we just read. I saw a picture of myself, a picture that was taken of me a long time ago. But I just saw the picture yesterday. And... In the picture, I'm drunk. And the look on my face completely, it actually, what we just read, describes the look on my face perfectly. And it actually, it, when I think about it, 
and I need to say it now, actually breaks my heart that, that it was that way. What does verse 21 say? Though he knew God, I knew God. I knew of God. I could tell you about it. I knew it. Though he knew God, he did not care. He did not honor God. He did not thank God. He rejected God. He did whatever he wanted, and his foolish heart was darkened. And that's exactly, if you look at my face, that's, I would show you the picture, but I'm too embarrassed to show you. I'm dead without this. I'm in. I see it right away, and I'm in. I'm dead without it, and I don't need to go any further because I knew him, and I didn't care, and I rejected him, and I hated him, and I just didn't matter. So I know I need it. Should we keep, are you guys good, or should we keep going? Because this is what he said. This is how it goes. This is how it goes. So some people, though, have caught everybody up. Some people suppress the truth. This would be true about some of the unrighteous. They suppress the truth. And here's what they suppress the truth. The truth they suppress is this, that God actually exists. So if you can suppress the truth that God actually exists and you can get him out of there, then, then you can do whatever you want. But as long as it says they suppress the truth, even though all of creation, it says, reveal his invisible attributes, his power, his might, his design, all of the world tells us that there really is one, but what we want to do, because our heart, foolish hearts are darkened, is we try to suppress it, that there is no God. And if we can get a creator God out of the picture, then what can we do? 